scriptures uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 8 in the Old Testament. I'll be reading the entirety of the chapter. This chapter, excuse me, it should be 2 Samuel chapter 7, not 8. And I have it wrong in the bulletin. Now I got it right in the bulletin. I've got it wrong on my notes here. <laughs> it's chapter 7. This is the chapter that uh, God reveals the covenant that He makes with David, the Davidic covenant. Uh, and I'll be commenting on that in just a few moments. But let's read the entirety of the chapter and get a, a, a perspective on how God, God brought this, this covenant into being uh, with uh, Nathan, his prophet, through Nathan, his prophet, with David, the king of Israel. Here, once again, the very words of God. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside a tent of curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you." And your house and your kingdom will be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? 
Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are, a great, you are great, O Lord God, for none is like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that, you have heard with our, all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for him, uh, yourself great and awesome deeds for your land? before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you, may, you have made your people Israel your very own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now therefore let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing let the house of your servant be blessed forever. The grass withers, the flowers they fade away, but the word of God stands forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this covenant that you made with David that you would build him a house when David desired to build you a house. And we thank you, Father, that in your Son, Jesus Christ, these promises have come to their fullest fruition. And we thank you that Christ sits at your right hand even now, making intercession for us until you've made all his enemies a footstool for his feet. Father, you are doing a great work. You have chosen us to be part of it. We were undeserving, but we are very grateful. And we pray this day that as we study this passage, that you would encourage us in our faith to, as David did, desire great things for you and your glory and your name. And we ask these things in the name of our dear Savior Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, last week we continued our studies in the Old Testament major covenants by considering the demand of the Israelites to have a king like the other nations. And God spoke to Samuel, as we saw in 1 Samuel 8, and told Samuel that he, God, had desired to be the king over his people, but they had rejected him. And Samuel was to give them what they wanted. The only caveat was that God would choose who that king would be. Well, last week after the service, Elder Fout came to me and pointed out a few verses that appear in Hosea's prophecy that sum up very nicely what God did in giving Israel their desire, a king like the other nation. Hear God's description of the selection of Saul as the king of Israel. From Hosea chapter 13, beginning in verse 9, O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. 
I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. That's a description of Saul, who was the first king in Israel. We also considered last week that God had already prophesied that he would be that he would give Israel a king back in the Mosaic Covenant. There God had described how Israel's kings should govern long before Israel had any kings. And this we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. But in Israel's haste and arrogance, they thought they knew better than God and they demanded a king of God, like the other nations. Before God was ready to give them the right king, and that was King David, they wanted a king after their own hearts, which was a a king who would not follow after the righteousness of God, but rather what he thought was good and right. God raised up David after Saul while he was allowing Saul to spiral down into sin and showing Israel that he, God, knew what was best for Israel. He showed them what it meant, what it meant to have an evil king at the same time he was raising up a righteous king. Well, David too was anointed by Samuel. Saul was anointed by Samuel, but David too was anointed by Samuel. But David would not sit on the throne of Israel for another 15 years after his anointing, while Saul's sins matured and brought about God's wrath, as was described in Hosea 13. So let's fast forward then to today's passage. So all of this happened in the early years, earlier years of Samuel's ministry in Israel. And now we fast forward, Saul has died, David is the king now, and David, in in a time of of ease and rest, uh, solicits Nathan uh, to do a good work for God. We see David on the throne in Israel, and he's lamenting the fact that he lives in a house made of cedar, and God resides in a tent. Of course, that's a reference to the tabernacle. David summons God's prophet Nathan, and David shares his concern, and Nathan tells David to do all that is in his heart. David desires to build a house of cedar for God, a house, uh, a a palace for God. Well, just as uh, timing was important for Israel to receive the king, and, and the Israelites had desired a king prior to God giving one, a righteous king to them, here, David's desiring to do something for God and the timing doesn't seem to be quite right. Timing is crucial for God and so God interrupts Nathan's sleep that very night. David's been told, go ahead and do what your heart desires by the prophet Nathan. God says, now wait a minute. He wakes Nathan that very night in his sleep to reveal that it would not be David who would build a temple for God, but one of David's sons. Here in Nathan's vision, God shows his mercy and grace in a very profound way. God has assessed David's desire to build a house for him as a noble desire, even though God is not disappointed in any way with the tabernacle in which he dwells. He says, I've I've been in this tabernacle ever since the people of Israel left Egypt, and has anyone 
Have I ever questioned it with any one of the tribes as we read in the passage? No, I've been satisfied with this. But God uses the desire of David to reinforce his cosmic desire to be the king of his people. And here God describes the house of David as becoming an eternal house of kingly rule over God's people. And here God commingles his desire to be a king over Israel with David's desire and David's house to create what God would show David to be an eternal kingdom. It is from this eternal kingly house that both David's progeny and God's divinity would rule the kingdom of God forever. Here again, we hear the, uh, the, the words of our text. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will set up your seed after you who will, be, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Psalm, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Well, these five verses are packed with cosmic truths. They speak of David's death, David's heir, the sin of David's heir, and the preservation of David's throne despite the sins of his son. It speaks of God's son providing a blood atonement for the sins of David's house and God's rule over over God's people through his faithful son. Oh, and by the way, David's son would build a house for God in these verses as well. It's almost as if it's an afterthought, the temple here. God's, God's making a promise of a kingdom. And oh, by the way, we'll, we'll take care of this temple thing as well. Brethren, so very many good lessons are packed in these verses, and time does not permit me to unpack each of them. However, I want to emphasize two lessons that I think are very prominent here. The first I've touched on already and that truth is the timing of God's compassionate will. Here, God could have been displeased with David for presuming to build, a, to, for presuming to build God a house. God is an omnipresent spirit and does not have a body like we have, as our confession teaches us. Can a house contain an omnipresent spirit? Generally, no. But God did have Israel build a tabernacle of his own design where he, God, would descend and reside in the midst of Israel. So in some respect, an omnipresent spirit can dwell in a structure. But notice that it's a structure of God's design, not of man's design. God understood the heart of David. Remember in the the book of Acts that we learned uh, from Luke's pen that David was a man who had a heart after God. That that was the nature of his heart, his demeanor, his, his hopes and his desires. So David is showing forth that desire here in wanting to build God a palace or a temple. God was pleased with David's heartfelt desire, but David was thinking too small. God would in some measure grant David's heartfelt desire 
but the structure would not be built by David, but by David's son. And here God is teaching both David and us that our hopes, our desires, our dreams are often too temporal, too small, too provincial. Additionally, our desires are often too small generationally. Do we make plans that last beyond our own generation? How many of us make plans that last for a century or even a millennia? Some of our forefathers had that kind of vision. Think about some of the great cathedrals that were built in Europe. Some of them took hundreds of years to build. And they were to last for hundreds more. Do we have that kind of perspective on God's work and God's kingdom? Well, in today's passage, God turns David's heartfelt desire to build God a palace during David's lifetime into a vision of God turning David's house into an eternal... I have too many words that begin with, with the vowels there into an eternal kingdom. He's, he's, God graciously tells David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build one for you that's an eternal kingdom. Your son will build a temple for me, but I'm going to build your house into an eternal kingdom. Now I've got to be careful here. I'm about to say something that might be offensive, so I'm going to give you a heads up. <laughs> My wife always chides me for doing that. You know, if I have bad news I'll off, and I'm away from her, I'll call her out and say, now brace yourself, I've got some bad news. And she, doesn't, she doesn't quite like that. Well, I'm going to borrow a phrase from Solomon here to describe how David is approaching this, this desire of his heart for God. So I'm going to borrow Solomon's phrase and say that God answered David like answering a fool according to his folly. Now, I don't mean the word fool there in a pejorative way. That's not what I'm saying. So i got to be very careful. I'm not trying to belittle David's desire. On the contrary, what I'm saying is that God eternally expands David's desire far beyond David's contemplation. So what? there's a kind of foolhardy request or desire in David's heart to build God a palace on earth, and God turns that on its head. He's, he's, he's answering the fool according to his folly. It's folly to think that you could build me a house. Let me build you a house. Let me show you what this is going to be like. This is a house for eternity. That's how God turns it upside down. God turns David's request into a cosmic response. An eternal house for David, whose son, our Lord Jesus Christ, would rule and reign forever and ever. We'll get to that next week and the following weeks as we think about the new covenant. I I looked up this week how many times the phrase son of David appears in the New Testament. I was shocked. I was shocked. So I'll speak to that a little bit next week. But that the son of David is is referring to Christ in the New Testament and how many times it appears is unbelievable. Okay, we'll get back to that next week. But our Lord Jesus Christ would rule and reign forever and ever. 
And I believe it was Hudson Taylor that once famously said, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And I wonder if he was thinking of David's heartfelt desire. He wanted to attempt a great thing for God. He wanted to build him a temple. And he expected great things from God, but I don't think he expected to receive the promise he got from God. I'm going to build a house for you, David, that's going to last forever. Forever and ever. By the way, David was no novice in attempting great things for God and expecting great things from God. Remember as a boy, he eagerly dueled a Philistine giant with a slingshot and a handful of small stones. And remember what he said to his brothers and the men around them. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide the armies of the living God? Here's this little boy chiding the army of Israel. David's faith in God was profound. David surely knew God could do the impossible, and we should have such faith. That's the first lesson I want us to learn from our passage. The second lesson I want us to learn from our passage is this. God knows best how to harvest from our godly desires the greatest benefit for His people and the greatest glory for Himself. It's a good thing to desire great things for God. That is a good desire. I commend that to all of you. We ought to try to do great things for God. Now, we may not, we may not reach our, our, uh, the goals that we would set before us in, in desiring to do that, but I can tell you this, God will use our feebleness for, for the good of His people and His own glory. As we attempt to do great things for God, He will profoundly, profoundly make that effort grow beyond our abilities, as is the case here with David. David wanted to do a great thing for God. God responded with an even greater promise. I want us to think about that with regard to this passage, that that's for us as well. Therefore, we should always expect the unexpected from God. This is what happened to King David. He had a godly desire he wanted to implement for God, and God transformed that godly desire into a cosmic kingdom. Well, throughout the Scripture, God provides for His people in unexpected ways. Just think about this. So, the people of Israel, they're in captivity. First of all, they go to Egypt with every good intention. They were suffering from a famine. And Joseph, one of their brothers, said, come live here. He had, he had uh, resolved the, the rift in the family. Come live here and live off of what, what I've put aside for the Egyptians. There's plenty for all of us. So that little clan goes into Egypt and for many centuries would, would live in, in comparative ease uh, with, with the pharaohs of Egypt. They, they weren't tyrants, but that changed over time. And so by the end of the 400 years, they were living under the hand of a tyrant with no real way of escape. So God profoundly changed that circumstance, right? Brought a few plagues. That's one of the... If you've never read about the plagues in the Scriptures, you need to do that. That's sobering stuff. Flies and and the rivers turning to blood and hail that comes down as fire from heaven. 
This was not an easy life during the ten plagues. And then, of course, the last one was the firstborn of man and beast would die by the death angel unless there was the blood put on the doorpost and lintel of a spotless lamb so that the death angel would pass over. Of course, that's the story of Passover. That's just one example. Let me give you another one. So the Israelites get out of Egypt. They're heading to the Red Sea. They got, they got on the edge of the Red Sea and Pharaoh thinks he has them, right? His armies have pressed them up against the, the sea. There's no way of escape. They don't really have any means to defend themselves. And what does God do? God puts a pillar of fire between his people and Pharaoh. So that stays Pharaoh's hand for a moment. God opens the sea up. The people of Israel pass into the, to the dry seabed. God lifts the, the pillar of fire. And now Pharaoh thinks he's got them. Okay, they're in the seabed. And what happens? He, he, God turns it on him. He closes the sea over Pharaoh and his armies. The greatest strength, military strength in all the known world at the time, is crushed in a moment. In a moment when that sea envelops the armies of Pharaoh. You see, God does the impossible. For Nothing's impossible with God. We find that in Matthew's Gospel. Okay. Throughout the Scripture, God provides for His people in unexpected ways. Ours, our, uh, we are supposed to be obedient to God. He is to give the increase. Our meat is to be humble. His is to lift us up. We must decrease and He must increase. Thus the least in His kingdom shall become the greatest and the last shall be first. You see how all those passages say to us, humble yourself, God will lift you up. Confess your sins. Make sure things are right with God. Live in obedience and watch what He will do. That's what the Scriptures are teaching us. We should revel in elevating others and seeking to sacrifice or becoming a sacrifice ourselves. Such was the case with the Hall of Martyrs listed in Hebrews 11. That's where the men's Bible study is right now. But more importantly, this was the example of our Savior Jesus Christ, was it not? Jesus attempted a great thing for God the Father. Did he accomplish it? It's hard. Uh, dying on a cross? Is that a great thing? Do you understand that this was not, this, there's no praiseworthiness there in the, in the eyes of men. But the third day he rose from the dead. Jesus attempted a great thing for God, and God the Father blessed that sacrifice to change the entire cosmos. Sin and death were conquered at the cross and in the resurrection, and they are no longer, they no longer curse the earth as they once did, sin and death. His death, burial, and resurrection are lifting the curse on all of the creation, according to Romans 8. And Jesus now reigns, and he too is a son of David who was promised in God's covenant to be a king in the lineage of David. He is transforming this world and the gates of hell will not prevail against the onslaught of Christ's kingdom. 
We should never lose sight of that. God is building a kingdom around His Son. Of the increase of His government and of His peace, there shall be no end. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform that. Well, brethren, in the last two weeks, I have personally seen or experienced God's profound handiwork in very similar ways. And time does not permit me to share uh, these circumstances with you. But I want to testify that God is profoundly at work as he was in the days of David. I also want to encourage us by noting that often we overlook how God is working in our lives in these profound ways. We often overlook that. We often think that God has forgotten us. Even David had these fits of fainting, as our forefathers in the 19th century would call them. Fits of fainting, where you, you become depressed or you become discouraged thinking that God is away from you, doesn't think what you're doing is important. What You seem to think, as if you think you're insignificant to God. Let me encourage you, that is never the case. We are never insignificant. We are the children of the living God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We're not some tertiary being that has no importance. On the contrary, some of the psalms that we sang this morning speak to how God is profoundly concerned about His own people. Even the, even the, the, the passage that, that Tom read for us from, from Daniel's prophecy speaks to that. God is profoundly at work as He, has, as he was in the days of David. And I also want to encourage us by noting that that when we overlook how God is working in our lives in these profound ways, we often think that God has forgotten us. Even David had these fits of fainting. There are times in our lives when God gives us rest for us to hone our skills, and often we assume He's ignoring us. Notice that David, in in this very passage, is at a time of rest. His enemies are no longer battling him. He's at a a time of ease, and he starts thinking about, hey, I live in a palace made of cedar, and God lives in a tent. we got to change this. There's something that needs to happen here. Sometimes in our times of, of rest or ease, we think God's not at work. Brethren, he's profoundly at work at those times. Let me give you an example. No doubt David wondered these same things when he was tending sheep and his brothers were defending Israel against the Philistines. My guess is David wanted to be there. His dad would send him with foodstuffs to the army so that his brothers had something to eat. But he wasn't able to stay there. He would have to go back and tend the sheep. David was being groomed for his confrontation with Goliath, was he not? Didn't he need to hone his skills to sling that stone that would take down a giant man? Where was he going to get that time to hone that skill? David had to be in the field with the sheep so that when the bears and the wolves came, he would learn how to fight a... a, 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 I was going to say a tyrant, but I guess those animals were tyrants of sorts. They were, they were ferocious animals, and he had to have the courage to stand to do that. 
David was being groomed for that confrontation with Goliath. He needed to hone his skills to sling the stone that would take down that giant man. And that skill could only be honed defending sheep. We should never despise small or seemingly insignificant beginnings. We should never presume that God doesn't take notice of us when we're honing a skill. He's giving us that opportunity. And we need to look at it in that way. God knows best. This goes back to the timing thing. So I want to encourage you. Be diligent to hone your skills. And obedient, be obedient to the Word of God. And God will lift you up. He will be prepared for when God calls upon you in time of need. When He wants His kingdom to be blessed by you. And I think God will do that. Well, let me turn our attention now back to, to the, our study in covenants. We have progressed through the five major covenants of the Old Testament. The, Ad, the Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. You like those way I said that instead of the covenant with Adam and the covenant with Noah. Um, that's the way theologians use the terms. And each of those covenants have emphasized particular aspects of God's redemptive works and his dominion over mankind and his creation. Nevertheless, they are all parts of a whole that seem to be out of joint at this point as we've studied through these things. They seem to be categories more than anything. It's almost like the Western mind. You know, we have to put everything in categories. We feel uncomfortable if things are outside of their categories. Well, that's not how the scriptures are written. Scriptures are written more like, as I've said many times, a tapestry where themes are flowing into one another that tell this great story. And you have to look at the whole, the parts, to, to understand the whole. That's what's happening here. These are parts of a whole. And that whole seems a little out of joint by the time we get to the, the Davidic covenant. How is this all going to come together? Well, that happens as we complete the study of covenants in the New Covenant. And next week, we're going to begin that study in the New Covenant. There are five primary Old Testament covenants that become one comprehensive covenant in Christ Jesus. So next week, we'll begin with God's promise to His people to give them a new covenant. We see that promise in Jeremiah's prophecy, chapter 31, and we see it realized in the book of Hebrews, chapters 8 and 10. And we shall trace that covenant right on through uh, this covenant, I should say. We shall trace all of the preceding five covenants through the new covenant because they're all contemplated and come to fruition in Christ Jesus. So that's the coming weeks. Uh, I, I mentioned... Uh, to someone, it may have been my wife, someone asked me, how many weeks are we going to spend on the New Covenant? I'm, I was hoping two. Looks like it's going to be three. So uh, right about the time Easter arrives, we're going to finish the study in covenants. Maybe that's appropriate because uh, Easter, when we celebrate the, the resurrection, that's the, rather than that's the, the culmination of God's uh, uh, work in redemption is the resurrection. You know, all things are made new uh, on that day. All right, let's pray.